you take your Bibles and turn them with me to Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. And uh, Job is real easy to find. Open up to the middle of your Bible, you'll probably be in the book of Psalms. Then take a left, and then you're at Job. I told you to sit down, but I'm going to have you stand up one more time (laughs) as we read the Word of God. So can you stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of the Lord? Sorry, that last song got me. I'm getting myself together. Job chapter 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me? And break me in pieces with words. These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. He's walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I'm gone. My hope has he pulled up like a tree. He's kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamped around my tents. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I called him my servant. But he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. And I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin. And to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. If you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there is a judgment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on us who are sinners. Thank you that the word of God says that 
if we say we are without sin, we lie, but if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Father, I pray that you will help us now as we look to your holy and inspired word, Father. Help us to be satisfied by the truth contained in your word and do your work in our hearts this very morning. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Out of all the things that you possess, what would be the worst thing to lose? Think about that. Think about all the things that, that you possess. What would be the worst thing to be taken away from you? It's a question worth pondering. It's a question that Job lived. As we continue our sermon series, Out of the Whirlwind, we, we find Job as having suffered and having lost to a greater degree than most of us will ever know. And part of what makes Job's sufferings even more devastating is when you consider the heights from which he has fallen. Job was incredibly rich, rich in possessions, rich in wealth, rich in respect and status, rich in physical vigor, rich in relationships with his family. And in a moment in time, Job lost virtually everything. He lost his possessions, his wealth, his children. He lost his status and reputation. He lost his health, and death now seems to be knocking at his door. And what intensifies Job's pain is that Job sees absolutely no sense in what is happening to him. Job and Job's three friends have been shaped and influenced by a worldview that says, if I'm doing what is right... If I am loving God and worshiping God, if I'm really striving to please God, then consequently good things should happen to me. I do good, it'll come back around and good things will happen to me. The more righteous I am, the more blessed I will be. Now, of course, if that's true, then the flip side of the equation would be true. If I'm sinning, if I'm doing wrong, then bad things will happen. And the more wicked I am, the more that I will suffer. That's the philosophy that has influenced Job's three friends and even Job. And so when Job's world comes crashing down upon him, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, try to connect the dots and they come to the conclusion that Job must be a faker. We looked at this last week, didn't we? Uh, that We unpack the theology of Job's friends and they conclude that Job really is a bad man which is why he is suffering, and because he's suffering so intensely, boy, he must be really bad. He must, he must be hiding some doozies in his closets. And so the solution for Job, according to them, is just to repent, confess his sins, return to God, and then the suffering will end. But the problem we see in the book of Job is that Job is not some wicked, rebellious, unrighteous person. He's a man who genuinely loves God, who is genuinely striving to live in a righteous way. In fact, he's described at the beginning of the book as a man of unusual goodness and righteousness to the extent that there's no other person like him. That's how God describes Job. And the big question for Job is why, which is a question we all gravitate towards during times of intense suffering. And this morning, as, as we explore the sufferings of, of Job and his experience, we're going to 
to, to learn a few things that I hope will be of benefit and help to, to us as, as we consider our own trials and things that, that we go through. And uh, you'll find these in your notes, a little fill-in-the-blank notes in your bulletin. But one of the things that we discover when we examine the suffering of Job is we discover the unique pain of the believer. The unique pain of the believer. There is a pain experienced by the believer that I think is uniquely sharp. It's not that unbelievers don't feel pain, they do. But the believer, however, there's an added dimension to the suffering of the believer because the believer really knows that there is one God who's created all things. He's sovereign over all things. So if pain comes, it must be God who sends it. Shall we receive good from God and not evil? Job asks in chapter 2. Job rightfully recognizes that no pain or suffering can come upon anyone without God choosing to permit it. And so it's not just that suffering hurts. Suffering hurts everybody. But what Job is struggling with and what sometimes we struggle with is the feeling that it is God who's doing the hurting. That's what Job is struggling with. In essence, the question for Job now is, is God my friend or my enemy? Is God for me or against me? Have you ever asked that question? When the pain comes, when the suffering comes on you, Job did, and he was the most righteous and God-fearing man of his time. Turn with me to, uh, to chapter 6. Chapter 6. Get a little snapshot here of, of how Job is wrestling with this and, and, and how it's influencing uh, his perception of God. Chapter 6, and look at verse 2. Job says, oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. In other words, friends, I'm I'm speaking the way I'm speaking because I'm really hurting. Why? Look at what he says. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Job here envisions God as an archer, using Job for target practice, and shooting not just arrows, but poison arrows, stalking and hunting Job down. Job is thinking, why is he doing this? And Job can't understand any of this, because Job's a believer. He's a real believer with a a clear conscience. Turn over another chapter to to chapter 7. And look at what what Job cries out in verse 17. He says, What is man that you make so much of him, that you set your heart on him? Do those words sound familiar? If you know your Bible or if you were paying attention to Steve's scripture reading er earlier, uh, you know those words probably not from Job 7, but you know them from Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, David is celebrating the special attention and favor that God shows human beings. It's a wonderful and positive thing in that psalm. But in Job 7, when Job talks this way, it's not wonderful and positive. Look again, Job 7, 17. What is man to make so much of him, 
that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? So while in Psalm 8, God's special attention towards man is a beautiful thing, in Job 7, it's a claustrophobic thing. It's a bad thing. In essence, Job is saying, why are you focusing on little old me? Why are you grinding me into the dust? Why can't you give me a moment of peace, God? Again, Job is struggling here. This God who I thought was a friend seems like my enemy. Where is the grace? Turn over to chapter 9. Chapter 9. Again, I hope you're reading the book of Job on your, on your own. Uh, we're getting, getting little snapshots on Sunday mornings. Chapter 9, uh, verse 22. Again, this is Job talking. It is all one. Therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocents. Job now is stepping outside of his own experience and just looking at the world at large. Job, in his anguish, is beginning to wonder, did I ever really know God at all? I thought you were kind and loving and gracious, but is that the real God? Could it be that God is not as benevolent as I thought? Is my God a God who cruelly mocks and laughs at the calamity of the innocent? Like some sort of despot? They're suffering. Ha, ha, ha. Is, is, is that him? Is, is that how God is treating me and my suffering? That's what Job is struggling with. And look what he says in verse 24. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. In other words, there's injustice in the land. God blindfolds the eyes of the judges. And look at what Job asks next. If not he, who then is it? See, Job's not questioning the sovereignty of God. He's affirming it. But this is precisely why Job is struggling. This all-sovereign God is also supposed to be all good, and yet his world is full of injustice and unfairness, and the, and the people he supposedly loves are suffering. With friends like God, who needs any enemies? Job here is suffering a pain that is unique to the honest believer who realizes that God is God, and yet the world is full of suffering and evil. That kind of pain is unique to the believer. Because when the unbeliever says, I'm troubled by the problem of indiscriminate suffering in the world, we may say to them, why? Why are you troubled by it? I'm troubled by it. As a believer, I'm troubled by it every day. But as an unbeliever, why are you troubled by it? Because you don't believe that there is a God who is sovereign and loving and good who made the world. So why would you expect there to be some sort of logic or fairness in the world? Why should you be perplexed that the world is as it is? But you are perplexed, aren't you? Isn't that interesting? Is that not because we, as humans, we're all deeply hardwired to believe that the world should be a fair and just place, that, that all isn't now as it should be. Now, where does that expectation come from? If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, 
troubled by suffering in the world and you're perplexed by pain and injustice, keep asking those questions. And keep asking yourself why you're asking why. Because you're already halfway to belief. So we see the unique pain of the believer. We also discover with Job the passionate longing of the believer. Job can be a hard book to read. Some of you are amening that as you've been reading through Job on your own or you've tried in the past. It's a hard book to read as you read chapter after chapter after lament after lament after lament. Uh, Nevertheless, all the while, you need to be particularly alert to a building theme in the book of Job. That despite Job's wavering confidence, despite his despair, despite his questioning of God, there is remarkably and beautifully at the same time flickers of light in the darkness, accumulating rays of hope that shockingly appear in the middle of his black laments. Because despite the things that Job has said about God, Job has this growing longing with all of his being to bring his case before this same God in in, in a sort of divine cosmic courtroom. Over and over again, Job expresses a desire to appeal to this court. Turn back with me to chapter 5. And uh, and let's see what Eliphaz thinks of such a notion. Good old encouraging Eliphaz. Chapter 5. Right right at the beginning there in verse 1. Eliphaz says, Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? In other words, come on, Job, get real. <laughs> you, can't, you can't be serious. Who in heaven would represent you? Who would take up your case? Who would defend you? God is clearly against you, Job, because you are a wretched, filthy, unrepentant, disgusting, guilty sinner. And, and yet, despite the sharp accusations of his friends, Job won't give up on this hope. Turn back to chapter 9. Kind of bouncing around here, playing tennis, going back and forth with the verses. Chapter 9. Job desperately wants to be seen as right before God. He wants to take his case to the heavenly courtroom, so to speak. But how can he win his case? And Job's thinking, I'm I'm just little, old, tiny, small, insignificant. Job, there's no way I can go toe-to-toe with God in court. And this is why Job says down in verse 32, For he, God is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Job is realizing that no matter how confused he is about this, no matter how much things appear to be unfair, he knows deep down inside he's got to turn to God. He needs a mediator. And as you continue reading through Job, It becomes increasingly clear what Job's greatest sorrow and deepest pain is. And for the first time, reader, it can be shocking. The deepest pain that Job feels is this belief that he has lost God. That he's not in right relationship with God. The loss of his kids, his wealth. These things are not the focus of Job's laments primarily. We see them sprinkled throughout and and, and we saw it in, in Job 19. But that's, that's not the, the main focus of his laments. Despite everything he is suffering and everything he has lost, Job will not give up on the one thing he desperately wants above all else. He longs to meet with God. 
and be in right relationship with him. And it's as if the deeper he feels the pain, the more he longs for this. Turn with me to chapter 14 for just one of the most moving moments in this book. It is so powerful, it is so beautiful, and so descriptive of the heart of a genuine believer. Job chapter 14. And look with me down at verse 13. This is Job talking to God. He says, Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. That's the grave. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time. Probably means a a time where his case is going to be heard. And remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. Now look at verse 15, and here is where it gets so moving. You would call, and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. In other words, you long for me. You want me. And then look what he says. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. How moving. How beautiful. This is the heart of Job. Job knows that above all else... What he was made for was a relationship with the living God. And he is desperately terrified that he doesn't have that relationship anymore. You get that? That's that's at the heart of his concern. He's concerned that all of his suffering means that the relationship is over. He's interpreting the suffering as a sign that the relationship between him and God is severed. Don't miss this. This is huge. Yes, it hurts to lose his health and his wealth and his ten precious children, but where the knife strikes deepest is the perceived loss of God. Can I just stop for a minute and say how convicting this is? I love God, but do I love him like this? Do I love him above my wife, my precious kids, my health, my possessions. If I lost everything but still had God, would I be satisfied? Or would I rather have the world and not God? What about you? If heaven had all you ever wanted but didn't have God, would you be okay with that? We are seeing in Job a man who treasures God more than anything, who realizes that the very worst thing to happen to him in this world and in eternity is to be separated from God, to lose the most precious and most valuable and beautiful thing in the universe. I wonder if you believe that this morning. That's the very worst thing that can happen to you. Job says, you would call and I would answer you and you would long for the work of your hands. He is desperate for that intimate relationship And yes, it's true that often in his laments, Job says some terrible things about God. In fact, Job seems to come awful close to telling God, I hate you. So how do you reconcile that? Those those negative feelings with also this deep longing and passion for God. Illustration that's been helpful to me, uh, maybe it is to you as well. Uh, You've probably seen one of those 
movies, dramas, where, where you've got a troubled relationship between two lovers, and you've got the girl saying to the man, I hate you. I hate you. Why have you done this to me? And yet we know in the drama that the heroine really loves the man desperately, and she's just longing and longing for him to prove that he's not the jerk that she thinks that he is and for him to love her again. I think that's the sense of what is happening in this true drama between Job and God. And Job, in his anger and confusion, says all of these awful things about God. Why? Not because he hates God, but because he loves him and longs to be in right relationship with him and to know and to have the confidence that God still loves him. And I think deep down, Job is holding on to the truth about God, which is precisely why he's clinging to God for help. He's clinging with all of his might. He is persistently and stubbornly going back to God. He keeps going back over and over again, hoping in God, and he's not going to give up. So we see the unique pain of the believer. We see the, the passionate longing of the believer. But also, as we explore Job, we are reminded of the true enemy of the believer, the true enemy of the believer. Now, when we get to Job 19, and you can go ahead and turn there, Job 19, Job at this point is about as low as he has been. And he really describes God as a savage, merciless monster, hunting him down and capturing him with a net. There's this adversarial relationship that, that Job feels like God has with him. Uh, look, let's pick it up in verse 11. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary, as his enemy. That's very interesting. He feels as if God is against him. Not the first time Job has cast God in this adversarial role. And look at Job's pitiful cry to his friends in verse 21. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Job says the hand of God has touched him. Whose hand? Whose hand has been touching Job all this time? Whose hand has been, without mercy, striking Job with heavy blows? Let's find out. Turn with me back to chapter 1. And let's remind ourselves that we know something, as the reader, that Job doesn't know. Chapter 1, verse 9. Then Satan, and, and, and maybe I should remind you, Satan's name carries the connotation of adversary, enemy. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? If you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side, you have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. 
Whose hand does God say is stretched out against Job? Satan's hand. Turn to chapter 2. Satan tells God in verse 5, Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Whose hand is Job suffering under? Look at verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. Who with his hand is striking Job with disease? You see what's going on? Job is right. He is indeed being savaged by a monster. Job is indeed being pummeled with heavy hands. Blow after blow after merciless blow. Job is right. He does indeed have one who is coming against him as a vicious, merciless enemy. He does have an adversary. Job is right about that. But... The monstrous hands and fingers that destroyed Job's possessions and killed Job's children and destroyed Job's health are the evil hands of Satan, not the hands of God. See, Job knows that there is an enemy striking him, pummeling him. He knows that there is an adversary abusing him, but he has wrongly identified the enemy as God. Three weeks ago, I preached pretty forcefully about the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. And I stand by that. But Job here makes a critical mistake. He takes the right doctrine of God's sovereignty and he applies it wrongly. He concludes that if bad things are happening in my life, if an enemy is coming against me, then it must mean that God is my enemy, that God is not for me, but he's against me. And we shouldn't be too hard on Job for his confusion. Job didn't have the book of Job to read. He didn't read chapters 1 and 2. He was in chapters 1 and 2. But we have read it. And because we have, we know something that Job doesn't know. That that Job's real enemy is Satan, not God. And the fact that God has, has sovereignly given this enemy permission to pummel Job with savage hands doesn't mean that God is in league with the enemy. It means that God must have a design in the sufferings of Job that is antithetical to Satan's designs. I think about the story of Joseph in the, in the book of Genesis. Joseph suffers at the hands of Joseph's wicked brothers. And how does Joseph respond? Joseph doesn't say, well, God was sovereign over this evil, so I guess it means that God's my enemy and is against me. No. Instead, he turns to his wicked brothers and says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God had a purpose in this suffering that was different than yours. But Job here, though, is is, is struggling He's struggling in this point of, of theology. Joseph was a little more advanced, I guess, in this than, than Job. And, and, and Job is beginning to fall for Satan's trick, putting on God the label of enemy. Let's remember, this is very important. Why is Satan attacking Job in the first place? What is Satan's goal? To get Job to curse God, proving that Job is a fake believer and proving that God in and of himself is not worthy of worship and devotion. The devil wants to belittle God's glory and worth. 
And so Satan is hell-bent on getting Job to curse God. And, And now Satan is leading Job to believe that God has indeed turned against him. I mean, Job now is at the point where he's calling God adversary. This is getting serious. And by the way, this is Satan's design in all of your suffering. And I'm not saying that Satan is directly involved in every single little act of suffering you experience. You know, you stub your toe. Oh, there's a demon in the floorboard. No, that's that's not where I'm getting at here. But in your suffering... Whether he is the direct agent of your suffering as he is here in the book of Job or not, regardless of all that, one thing is certain. I promise you this. The devil wants to use your suffering to get you to curse God, to give up on God, to get you to believe that God is your enemy, that he is not for you, but against you. And you need to know if you are here this morning as a believer, adopted into the family of God, there is never a moment... Never a moment when God is in adversarial relationship with you. God is for you, believer, and not against you. If you're an unbeliever, that's a different story, and we can talk about that later. Nevertheless, despite Job's growing doubts about God's good intentions for him, there is this inner conflict in Job. You've got this longing for God. This, this hope that God is not really his enemy and that in the end, this same God will vindicate him, which leads to my final observation, and that is the ultimate sure hope of the believer. Even the darkness and confusion in Job's mind, he, even then, he can't fully hold back the truth. And in chapter 19 which is so dark and despairing, turns out also to contain Job's greatest moments. Job shines more here in chapter 19 than just about anywhere else in this book as we see his bold, audacious, and stubborn faith. If you're not in chapter 19, get over there. This is good. Chapter 19. And Job's been saying all this horrible stuff that's been happening to him and just how, how bad things are. And talking like God is his enemy. But then, look at, look at verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. By the way, that's very ironic that he's saying that. I digress. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. What's Job talking about here? He's talking about vindication. He longs to be proved in the right with God. He longs for his friend's accusations to be proven false. Write the truth in the book. Better yet, engrave it in rock. That lasts longer than a book, but even that is not enough. Job yearns for permanent vindication. Even a rock erodes and wastes away. So now Job makes a leap. A leap of faith. A leap from yearning to faith-filled hope. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, the Redeemer was someone tied to you by covenant, typically a relative. So they were called a kinsman Redeemer. 
And their responsibility was to stand for you when you were wronged. If you were murdered, the Redeemer saw to it that the murderer was punished. If your widow was childless, he gave her the child. If your land was under threat, he safeguarded it. In every way, the Redeemer was the relative who stood for you when you could not stand for yourself. One of the best examples of the kinsman-redeemer concepts in the book of Ruth, where Boaz comes and, and makes himself kinsman-redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. Job here in verse 25 is with bold confidence declaring that he has a redeemer and he lives. In other words, he lives forever, unlike the impermanence of a book or even a stone inscription. And who is Job's redeemer? Who is Job's vindicator? Surely it is God himself. Remember Job in chapter 9? He asked the question, how can man be in the right with God? And he says in chapter 9, verse 32, I already read this, you don't have to go go there if you don't want to. He says, for God is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. Listen to this. He says, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. You see, Job longs for a mediator who can represent both God and himself. Both God and man. The mediator must not be a mere man, and yet he must represent man. This redeemer must be able to stand for Job, but also stand as an equal before God. Job senses that that is the key to being in right relationship with God. Let's continue on here in in chapter 19. Job says, My Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, literally upon the dust, which may be a reference to Job's grave. Better than a fading tombstone with my vindication inscribed upon it is an eternally living vindicator standing on my grave, attesting to my genuineness and my right relationship with God. But notice that Job is not simply looking forward to a redeemer to testify over his grave that Job's accusers are wrong. It's more than that. Job believes that he will see this redeemer God face to face with his own eyes beyond the grave. Look at this amazing statement from Job in verse 26. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet... In my flesh, I shall see God. That's amazing. On the one hand, his flesh will be destroyed. And yet afterwards, he believes that one day that same flesh will stand again and he shall see God. As Job had longed for in chapter 14, he will indeed be hidden in Sheol and then summoned in resurrection to meet his God at long last in right relationship forever. Verse 26. Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. That Hebrew word for heart is literally bowels or kidneys, considered the the seat of emotion. Job is feeling deep emotions here. You know, sometimes you and I may speak of butterflies in the stomach. Well, for Job, this is more like elephants. Job is so moved. He is so moved by the prospect of what he's looking forward to. Yes, he's been struggling. Yes, he said some pretty bad things about God. But this moment, 
I think, takes us into the deepest recesses of his heart. This is Job at his core. He refuses to believe that God really is that awful, unfair monster that he's been describing. The deepest longing of Job's heart is to stand before the God he loves and worships, and he believes that he will. This is the thing that shakes his emotions to the core, not the possibility that God might restore his wealth. Not the prospect of seeing his children in heaven as much as he may want those things. It is only the thought of being in right relationship with the Lord, the Lord that he loves. It's only that thought that penetrates the black despair that seeks to engulf him. And oh, how Job's words must burn Satan. How Satan must have stopped up his ears at the mention of a redeemer. How he must have roared, why won't you curse God, Job? Why? Why do you keep coming back to him? And Satan, who has worked so hard to drive Job into cursing God, finds that he is doing the opposite. He's driving Job deeper into God. Because in this moment, Job is not banking his hopes on the absence of suffering in this life. He's not banking his hopes on the affirmation of his friends or on the possibility that his wealth and health will be restored. Instead, he's banking his hopes on the goodness of a Lord whom he regards as a kinsman, a kinsman redeemer who will one day make everything right. It is the redeemer who will ensure that Job is in right relationship with God now and for eternity. And the redeemer is the proof that God is actually for Job and not against him. Now, you and I, on this side of the cross, recognize that Job was speaking more than he realized. Job, in a moment of God-given insight, glimpsed in part through shadows what you and I see fully in broad daylight. In your suffering, in my suffering, as we are battered and bruised by difficulties and pain, how can you and I know that God is for us and not against us? As the enemy, uh, Satan whispers in your ear that God has abandoned you, that God has deserted you, that he's, he's cast you out because of your sins. Friends, there is a sovereign redeemer who lives, a sure arbiter between us and God, a man who is more than a man, but who can also represent man. Jesus is that redeemer. Jesus Christ is the God-man, the sovereign kinsman redeemer. You say kinsman? Jesus, my kinsman? Romans 8.29 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Our elder brother Jesus saw you and I, his brothers and sisters, held in captivity by our sin, by the devil, And we needed someone to stand for us, or we could not stand for ourselves. And Jesus was sent on a mission by God the Father to redeem and rescue you and me from that captivity. If Job was a blameless believer, how much more was Jesus? If Job was attacked and clawed at by the enemy, how much more did Satan viciously come after Jesus? Satan inspired Jesus' enemies to accuse him of sin. 
Satan entered into Judas and motivated him to betray Jesus. Satan influenced the religious leaders who pointed accusing fingers at Jesus, declaring him to be the most heinous of sinners. And after being savaged by Satan, Jesus went to the cross and faced the worst foe of all, God the Father. You see, while Job felt wrongly that God was against him and punishing him, while Job felt that his relationship with God had been cut off with Jesus, it really happened. God was never Job's enemy. But God did, for one horrible Black Friday afternoon, become as an enemy to Jesus. Because when God looked at Jesus, you know what he saw? He saw your sin. All of those awful things that you have done that alienated you from God were put on Jesus. The Bible says that he became sin who knew no sin. And the thing that Job feared the most, being cast out by God, that very thing happened to Jesus. The way Jesus redeemed us was by becoming our substitute and, and, and suffering the pain and isolation and horror of hell itself. As it says in Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus paid the ransom so that those in the past who look forward in faith to a redeemer like Job and those today who look backward in faith towards the redeemer like us can be set free from the bondage and guilt of our sin when we trust him and we can be brought back into right relationship with God. And you can be assured that many people who witnessed or heard about Jesus' crucifixion were just like Job's friends. They probably shook their heads and said, this man must be a real sinner. Look at how horribly he died. And yet Jesus was vindicated publicly on the third day when he was raised from the dead. Shown to be accepted by God and righteous. Proving that his payment is sufficient for all who believe. And if you believe, when God looks at you, what does he see? He doesn't see a a wicked sinner who deserves death. He doesn't see an enemy. He sees Christ and the righteousness of Christ. Because when you believed in him, his righteousness was permanently put on you. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's pretty amazing. So in closing, how can you know for sure that God is for you and not against you? When Satan, the world, or even your own dark thoughts assail you with accusations, how can you know for sure that God is for you? You can know because you have a Redeemer. And He lives. Uh, You can know because God gave up His Son for you. You can know because of a cross and an empty tomb. There is no greater proof of God's love for you than that. Scripture says in Romans chapter 8, And I'll close with this scripture. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long as we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, for those of us this morning who are believers, I pray that you would help us to believe that word. That even the most intense suffering and trial we may go through, that, that those things are not a sign that you have stopped loving us. Not, 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 not a sign that you have forsaken us. Not evidence that you are an enemy. You're always for your people. So Father, help us to get out of that mindset of interpreting our, our trials as meaning that you're in some sort of adversarial relationship with your sons and daughters, because that's not the case. And Father, I pray for those this morning who have come and who are not believers. And Father, I pray that you would help them to know that there actually is an adversarial relationship between them and between you, and because of their sin, wrath eternally is on the horizon for them. And yet, also let them know, Father, that you have provided a way of escape from that wrath. That you have provided and offered up your own son to take punishment for sins. So that whoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so Father I pray that any unbeliever in this room would cast all of their hope on the cross. And what you have done for your people. That you take enemies and you make them into friends and family. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.